Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. That's one of my favorite uh, Christmas songs, especially because I like the last, the last line's the best one, right? That uh, even though there is, it seems there is no peace on earth, but yet the, the bells still ring, call's still there, the Savior's on the throne, amen? So we have that blessed hope, which is what we're going to be kind of looking at this morning. If you'll go back with me to what we read this morning, Isaiah chapter 11 is where we'll be to begin with this morning, Isaiah chapter 11. The Advent of a King, Isaiah 11. As we talked about, I do like Christmas music. How many of you remember the Chipmunks, right? Right? Alvin, Simon, Theodore, right? They've been around for a long time. They always had this Christmas song every year that that they would sing and and that uh, my kids enjoy listening to it as well. And it was uh, uh, Christmas, Christmas time is here, right? Time for toys. Are you singing it in your head? And the last line always was like this, right? We can hardly stand the wait. Please, Christmas, don't be late. How many of you know that one, right? Remember that song? See? That's what's hard for us, isn't it? That waiting period. That, that time. We're waiting for Christmas right now. Many of us have anticipation and hope, especially some young ones about what's going to be there under the tree on Christmas morning or those kind of things. We have that anticipation, that hope, and that's what that song is kind of talking. Of course, it's pretty materialistic, but that's what it's talking about, the waiting period and the anticipation of it all. That's really what Advent's about. That's what this uh, passage is about. That's what our message today is about. That's what our songs have been about today. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and O come, thou long-expected Jesus. And even though there's a little bit of uh, uh, Old Testament things in those songs, there's some New Testament uh, references as well in some of those songs we sang today. But it's that waiting period. And that's where we find ourselves today, kind of in this second Advent waiting period for the Lord, because the first Advent's already happened. That's what we celebrate right now uh, here at, the, at this time of year. We celebrate the first Advent because he came uh, as a, to, a, to a humble stable, to a manger was born to die, born to save us, rose again, ascended to heaven, and now we wait for the second advent. And I think it's good for us. We, we've started doing this, I think, at least since I've been here, about 2018. I think Pastor Jason and I were kind of talking earlier this week before they left. I think it was about 2018 we started doing it a little bit more. But we have the candles here, you know, and the waiting period and what that means. And we may not do it exactly the way that it's supposed to be done, but it helps us, I think, in a lot of ways. It helps us kind of extend the season. You know, sometimes we can get very caught up this time of year with all the other things, right? We got to buy things. We got to make sure our, our food is ready for Christmas Day and what we're going to cook and who's going to cook what. Some of you are coordinating with other family members around the county. You're like, you got the turkey and we got the ham and you got the deviled eggs, you know, that kind of thing. And so we get caught up sometimes and we don't always take time to realize. But when we have Advent, it kind of reminds us about why we're able to do it in the first place. Why are we able to sing, joyful, joyful, we adore you? Why are we able to sing these songs today? 
So I think it has a few good things. First of all, it does help us extend the season, as I just said. But second of all, I think looking at Advent and celebrating Advent and those kind of things kind of helps us connect to all the other saints. Remember, we're not the first group of Christians in the world to wait for the second coming of Christ. We look all through the New Testament. As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, they were looking for the second coming. And Paul wrote about it. And so many looked for it. And so many for the 2,000 plus years have been looking and waiting so it connects us to those saints that have gone on before us who also were waiting for that. But it also connects us to the Old Testament in some way. Because even though they were waiting for a first advent that they may not have fully understood, they were still in a waiting period for redemption. They were still in a waiting period for something to be made new. They were still in a waiting period to see peace on earth and goodwill to men. And that's what they too. So we also, with those Old Testament saints, can join together in that. That helps us realize the longing for renewal, the desire to see things made right. It's not just a struggle for us today, but it was for them as well. And so as we look today at Isaiah 11, a little bit later on, Lord willing, Romans 15, we're going to examine that, the advent of a king. Let's pray together before we begin. God, we do pray today again, Lord, that you would help us to focus our hearts and lives on you and to set aside all else right now, God, that we may see you, that we may glorify you, that we may... Uh, uh, have our hearts open to you, Lord. We know that you are with us, God. Your promise is to never leave us or forsake us. And so we pray, God, that you'd help us today as we examine your advent. And as we live in light of the second advent, God, what it means for us, help us this season to worship you and glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. Back here in Isaiah chapter 11, we'll look at verse one first, the coming of the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, when you come to this passage here, instantly we're going to begin to see some messianic things that are being spoken about. We have the capital letter on branch. We have the stem of Jesse. We have things that are, that are cluing us in that we are speaking of the Messiah, but we have this stump here and we're wondering what is going on. Well, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 10, and we won't read all of that this morning, but as we go back to Isaiah chapter 10, what we see before us, you can just jump up there to verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with terror. The high ones of stature shall be hewn down. The haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. And Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Remembering that that is what we're seeing now. Imagine, if you will, and you can see it pretty clearly. It happens here quite a bit. An area of clear-cut land. Just stumps that are left remaining. And that is what we have, this scene before us. All of the world's empires cut down. It's a very fitting song that Miss Corinne played this morning for Offertory because it has that line in there. Kings and nations shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. It's eternal. But all the kingdoms of the world passed away. They're stumps in front of the Lord. They're cut down. God is using the Assyrians at this point to cut down a forest of wicked rulers, leaving only stumps behind. And the ruler at that time was named Sennacherib, and he began to boast himself as well. But even further back in chapter 10 of Isaiah, we get this in verse 15. You can look there with me. Verse 15 of chapter 10. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. 
God says to Sennacherib, I'm using you right now to cut down this forest of wicked rulers. But don't think of yourself more than you should because when I'm done with you, I'm going to throw you away as well. So all the empires cut down before the Lord. And he declares that from one of those stumps, the stump of Jesse, will come new life. A branch. It's a new beginning. And this is here because at the time of Jesus' first advent, the throne of David had been empty for some 600 years. There had not been a king since that time. And Isaiah himself at this time is prophesying of events that would happen probably 700 years from when he actually gave the prophecy. And even as we get into this later on, you're going to see that it's 2,700 years plus from some of these prophecies that are going to begin. And we'll see in a moment those things. But before we get too far into that, we need to kind of understand something about biblical prophecy, the way that it kind of works. There is a immediate fulfillment of these things. When you go back and look through history and Isaiah talking about the stumps, there's a time when these kingdoms fell. There's a time when this happened, five, ten years, maybe out from this prophecy, maybe less, one year. And that happens. And then we see some messianic prophecies, but there's no indication of time. But we see things about the Messiah that didn't happen for 700 years. And then we get later on, we're going to see things that are going to happen in the future that haven't even happened yet. So how do we understand those things? Well, this is a good way to do it. It it helps me because I grew up, many of you remember, I grew up in western North Carolina, going camping and hiking all over west North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, living there every day. Many of you have been there, I know, during the fall, especially like to go look at the leaves and those kind of things. And when you look out, you go up to a high place on the mountain and you can look out across the valley. You can see a ridge here of mountains and you can look and see maybe another one a little further and another one a little further away, okay? From where you're standing, you may not necessarily know the distance between those mountains. They look kind of close sometimes. There's really not a lot of indication though, usually from where you're standing, how much distance is in between each one of those mountains. How big is the valley? between the mountains that are the closest to you and the next ones you can see. That's kind of the way that biblical prophecy is. There's no timetable given. And as they're looking out, they're seeing these ridges. They're seeing the immediate fulfillment happen. And the next one out, they're seeing the Messiah come. And then the next one out, they're seeing things that pertain to the second coming of the Messiah. But there's no indication of the time that is in between there. That's why sometimes it's hard for us to understand biblical prophecy. But what we do know is that this passage deals with both the first and second coming of Messiah. It deals with both things. And now we have a little bit of an advantage because we can look back over the whole Bible. We have all the prophets contained together, the minor prophets, the major prophets. We have all those things. We have the New Testament. We're on the other side of the cross. We can see things a little bit more clearly than they could back then. So we do have a little bit of an advantage of that. So we have the branch from Jesse. We have the new life in Jesus, who's the Messiah. And we see how he is coming. The first time in humility and humbleness. Let's look at the power of Messiah. Verse number two. Go to verse number two. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When we read this verse, there are some here you might be thinking as you heard that. You know, I've heard that phrase before, the Spirit of the Lord. And you're right. You're correct, of course. 
The reference of the Spirit of the Lord also is found in Isaiah 61.1. And that is the passage of Scripture that Jesus partially quoted in Luke chapter 4. Let's go to Luke chapter 4 quickly with me, please. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. We'll read it there. They say the same as Acts 61.1. Jesus intentionally stops at a part of that particular area. He goes to synagogue that morning and has handed the scroll of Isaiah goes right to this part of the scroll of Isaiah. Verse number 18 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And that was where he stopped. If you were to go on Isaiah 61, verse number 2, you would see the day of the vengeance of the Lord. And he stopped there because that wasn't what the day was yet. It's not the day of the vengeance of the Lord. It's the acceptable year of the Lord because he's coming as the Messiah, the first coming. He is the branch, the shoot. And Isaiah tells us, we'll go back to our our main text. Isaiah tells us here, the spirit of the Lord would rest upon Messiah. And Jesus quoted that at the temple that day. And it's very important that he stopped where he did to indicate to us the time of the second coming and the other things that are mentioned are not yet It is the time for his first coming. Going back to verse number 2 of Isaiah, chapter 11. Lord, it's all capital. It's all capitals there. That's very significant because the Spirit of God the Father is on God the Son. And this is the only way, the only way this could be is that they are the one in the same essence, power, and glory. That's a very important phrase. One in the same essence, power, and glory. This Old Testament passage is indicating to us the Trinity of God. Because we have the branch, who is Jesus. We have him doing the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And he is doing it in the power of the Spirit, all three present here. You may not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it is a doctrine that is taught throughout and is very important to Christianity. It's very important to understanding who Jesus is, understanding the Trinity. Jesus Christ did not give up any of his deity when he came to earth, but he added to himself flesh that he may come and die in our place and take on our sin. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. This passage here is indicating a very important thing to us as well, that there is a trinity. Notice too in verse 2, there are seven spirits. You may have missed it the first time we went through, but we'll go back. So it's the spirit of the Lord. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's the spirit of counsel and might. It's the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven mentioned, the number of perfection. So again, showing the fullness and perfection of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 1.4 says this, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. It's the source of his power, the power of the Holy Ghost resting upon the Messiah, upon Jesus The most important thing from that verse is this. The Messiah will have and does have all the power to bring the world back from sin and turn it to the knowledge of God. He has all those things. Let's look at now the character of the Messiah. The character of Messiah, verses 3 to 5. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. Reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle 
of his reins. The fear of the Lord is his delight. If you have a modern English translation, it probably says that. The fear of the Lord is his delight. That's what it means in the King James. This shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is his delight. Proverbs 1.7 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let me pause here for just a minute. Jesus Christ lived in the delight of the fear of the Lord. So the question for all of us today is, do we also live in the delight of the fear of the Lord? It always sounds strange, especially in our day today when so many people emphasize, you know, God is love, God is love, which is true. It is very true. But he's also holy and righteous and just and on and on we can go. So what is the fear of the Lord? It is to respond to him in awe and trust and obedience and worship. Is that your response? Do you delight to respond in those ways to Jesus? It's doing the will of God from the heart. And Jesus delighted to do the will of God. John 4, 34 tells us this. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Multiple times in the scriptures we're told that where Jesus came to do his father's will, not his own will. He delighted in the will of the father. Think about this for just a minute. Maybe that'll kind of help us a little bit. Generally speaking, we think of a father and child relationship, right? Your father loved you. You had love for your father. But you knew he had authority over your life. You knew that he needed respect. You knew he was the head of the house. So you wanted to obey and please him. In the same way, that's, that's kind of the fear of the Lord as well. And Jesus said it was his food to do the will of God. Notice, too, that he judges correctly, not after outward appearance. In verse 4, with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity for the meek of the earth. Why is it that he does that? Jesus is able to, his, his judgments, his character are perfectly able to be trusted and pure because he delights in the fear of the Lord. He doesn't judge on outward appearance. He doesn't judge on things that men judge by. He doesn't look on and say, well, this person's got, this person's this way and this person's that way, so... Slap on the wrist over here and a little bit harsher punishment. Doesn't do things of that nature. Because the fear of the Lord is his delight, he judges correctly and properly, and his judgment is to be trusted. That's the fear of the Lord. Now, right through these verses, into verse 4, verse 5, is where it kind of begins to shift that very next mountain range. Talking about the second advent of Christ here. Look at the rest of. Verse 4, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. Shall he slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his range. Now there's a very uh, specific reference there in verse 4, and I'll just go ahead and tell you it's my very firm conviction that the things we read Rex are about the Jesus, Jesus millennial reign on earth, the new heavens, the new earth. But it's also a very confirm, firm conviction of mine that there is a rapture of the church before the seven-year tribulation. That there is a seven-year tribulation, that some of the things we just read are described there, but that is before that, and then the seven years, and then the second advent of Christ where he sets up his millennial reign. And I'll tell you why, because Paul gives us a little bit of clue about this. If you're in 2 Thessalonians, you can go there, or I'll read it here. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 
says this, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. See, Paul had a vision of the second coming of Christ. And Jewish scholars and other Christian scholars agree that in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is seeing that, the wicked one, the lawless one, the man of sin, those type of references that are given there in 2 Thessalonians, that's the Antichrist. That's who that is. And Paul is given a glimpse of that. 2 Thessalonians is about the second coming. 1 Thessalonians is about meeting the Lord in the air. They're two different things. They're two different events. So that's the clue I believe we get in, in, in verse number four. We're on to the second advent, the second coming, because it says here that he will destroy with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, shall he slay the wicked. That's the, that's the view that I believe scripture teaches. Antichrist is defeated, thrown in the lake of fire. After the seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns for the second advent. Let's go on here and looking at the reign of the king. The reign of the king, Isaiah eleven six through 16. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play in the hole of the asp. The weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The waters cover the sea, and that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Looking first at the ecology of Messiah's reign, those verses we just read, the ecology of Messiah's reign. Now, this is where it begins again. People begin to disagree. It's a metaphor, maybe. It's not really just kind of these things here. But the ecology of the Messiah's reign is an actual description. It's not just a metaphor. There's other passages. Isaiah 65, we could read some of those if we had time this morning. Other places in the New Testament, the Old Testament both, uh, where we could see that. So it's not, a, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just what's going to happen. It is an actual description of the way it will be. Notice that nature is back in harmony. It's similar to the way the Garden of Eden would have been. We have all kinds of animals that today would get after each other and one would eat the other one, take advantage of the weakness of the young. Something would happen to a young child playing on a snake, playing with a snake. It's back in harmony. Okay? Animals will live with people. In Isaiah 65, we see that lifespans will be longer. Jesus will be reigning from Jerusalem, from David's throne. Let's look over at Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Because one thing we need to understand about that is that the whole creation is together under the curse. It's not just the curse of Adam that is passed on to us. It's on a whole of creation. Romans 8 verses 19 to 22 tell us this. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For you know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. We are waiting the second advent, but all of creation is waiting the second advent. All of creation is waiting for the day when things will be made new. And during the Messiah's reign, it will be that way. It will not be subjected to those things. There are also many promises made to Israel that have not been fulfilled. And so in that 1,000-year reign, 
all the fulfillment of those prophecies will come about. And Jesus actually is demonstrating to us when he was here in his first advent, demonstrating the conditions of the kingdom. When we read through the book of Matthew, we read other places where his miracles are described. Those are the conditions of the kingdom. People who were blind are seeing again. People who died are raised to life. People who were lame are healed. The conditions of the kingdom are revealed to us. And we see that in the ecology of the Messiah's reign. Let's look at the exodus of Messiah's reign. Verses 11 and 12. It shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall lift up an incense for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The exodus of the Messiah's reign. We see again this second time period of Jews being called back to Israel from all over the earth. That's because verse 10 tells us that a banner is raised, an incense, a banner calls all the people home. Gentiles come as well. All nations drawn together to Jerusalem during the Messiah's reign. Looking ahead for just a moment to verses 15 and 16. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. With his mighty wind shall he make his hand over the river, shall smite in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. There is nothing that will stop God's plans for the world. There's nothing that will stop God's promises from the world from coming to pass. Even those natural barriers that exist today will be moved away. We've seen it do it before. He, he mentions it there when the Israelites came up out of Egypt the first time. The Red Sea was made dry and they went across on dry land. It will happen again in the Messiah's reign to bring all of them together. Jesus is reigning on the throne Let's look at the peace of Messiah's reign. Verse 13 of, chapter, of Isaiah 11. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim, but they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab. The children of Ammon shall obey them. There's a peace. We sang about those that today in, in multiple songs. There's a peace in the Messiah's reign that's coming. Old enemies will not choose war anymore. Ephraim and Judah are the, are the references there to the ten northern tribes, Ephraim or Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, Judah, the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah that were there, the two kingdoms after David passed away and after Solomon passed away, the two tribes were divided, their two groups were divided. The two kingdoms. There is a little bit of uneasy peace there. But that won't happen anymore. All of them will come back together. All of them will be at peace with one another. Also, their old enemies will be put down. We saw the, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, all of them put down under the reign of the Messiah. And those promises that will be made will be fulfilled. Israel has a prominent place in the millennial reign due to, due to all the covenants that are made with them. And the Gentiles, that's us, we, we won't be there at this time, but the Gentiles will enjoy the benefits and blessings of this time as well. The millennial reign of Christ on earth after his second advent. Let's go ahead and, and move into uh, uh, Romans chapter 15. 
Romans chapter 15, we see the comfort of the Messiah. As we come to a close, Romans chapter 15 with me today. The hope of the king. Romans chapter 15, the hope of the king. The hope of the king. Starting in verse number four of Romans chapter 15. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Jump down to verse eight. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles and sing thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, he shall go, he that, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Notice the comfort of Messiah. Isaiah 11.10 tells us that Jesus is the root. Isaiah 11.1 1 tells us that he's the branch. He is both. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who establishes uh, uh, Jesse and David. He is also the fulfillment of it. Matthew chapter 1, he is in the lineage of David. We won't read all of Matthew chapter 1 today, but it's a very important part of Scripture. It shows Jesus has a right to the throne. But back to the text we have here, the things written aforetime are written for our learning. And they are written for our learning so that we can have hope. And that's the comfort of the Messiah. The comfort of the Messiah today is that as sure as he came the first time, he will come again. As sure as the promises that happened for the first advent have been fulfilled, the ones that are pertaining to the second advent will also be fulfilled. He will come again. We have that hope. Jesus gives us hope now. And it's not that kind of hope that's kind of built on, you know, what we want or what we hope or what we think. But it's a hope built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ himself. It's a confident assurance that Jesus Christ can and will do all that he says he will do. The comfort of the Messiah is that all his promises will come to pass. We can see how those things have gone before us. That's what Advent is for. These people who have gone before us, they lived in the same hope. They had the same comfort. They've endured with the same patience that we have these days as well. The confirmation of Messiah, verses 8 and 9. Jesus Christ, now I say that Jesus Christ was was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the Father. Jesus' earth ministry was twofold. One, to do that, to confirm the promises made to the Old Testament Jews and the millennial reign. The second was also so that we as Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Look at verse 9, that Gentiles might glorify God. That's, what it, that's, that's the other part of his ministry. That's the other part of why he came. Understand that, that, that there are promises made to Israel that will come to pass someday. There are no promises made to Gentiles other than you can be saved if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. We glorify God for his mercy. We live in hope today of his mercy. We glorify God for his grace on us. The blessing of salvation. God determined that through the Jews, all nations would be blessed. And that's happening now. That's what I want to leave you with today. We're experiencing the spiritual blessings of salvations and God's mercy on us now. Jesus will be an ensign, a banner to the nations in the middle of rain, millennial reign. But he's standing now as a banner of salvation. John 12, 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He was lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up now in the right hand of the Father. He will be lifted up in the millennial reign, drawing men to himself. And his death and resurrection confirm this. Finally, we see the commendation of Messiah, verses 10 to 13. 
Paul writing here, concluding this chapter, quoting from four Old Testament passages, starting with the words, as it is written. And he's making a line of thought using the different divisions of the Old Testament according to the way Jews divided it. He's got one from the law, from Deuteronomy. He's got one from the prophets. He's got some from the Psalms. That's the way the Jews divided the Old Testament up. God is praised among the Gentiles by the psalmist David in verse 15 and 9. That's a quote. Verse 15, 10 is Moses imploring the, the Gentiles to praise God. Verse 15, 11, another psalm. And finally, our quote from today in verse 15, 12, that Gentiles live under the rule and root of, and have hope in Jesus Christ. And it's all happening now. And so Isaiah eleven ten exhorts us in the same way today to follow the same, to share Jesus this season, to remember that there is a day of glorious rest coming. And in verse 13, our source of hope and joy and peace is God. Fill you with all of those things. That's what the different candles represent, by the way. Hope and joy and peace and love. We have abundant hope through the power of the Spirit. Jesus will come again in his second advent. The world will be made new. So live in hope now. Maybe today as we close, you're unsure of that hope. Maybe you've not experienced it. There'd be nothing better today than for you to come and experience that hope before you leave this place. You can talk to me, you can talk to Pastor Daniel, you can talk to a deacon. Maybe you're saved, but you find it hard to live that hope sometimes. Come today and ask Jesus to renew your hope and love and peace. And so as we close, don't wait. Obey the Spirit's leading in your heart today. Let's stand together at this time for a moment of invitation.